Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1963 Jean-Luc Godard film Contempt. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Barrett, um, this is our second Godard film um, that we've watched. Uh, we watched Breathless uh, a while ago. And I'll say that's a movie that I came to really love. That There was something very exciting uh, about that movie um, and very uh, almost like DIY about that movie, you know, <laughs> that, that it felt it felt like and then that gave it a kind of energy and urgency. Um, this is a this is a very different uh film in some ways you know compared to that the budget that Godard has is much bigger um but I will say as I was reading Godard obituaries and remembrances whenever this film would come up I would get excited I was like oh this sounds really good so I'm glad that you uh that you recommended this what is your history with this film uh that's an interesting question uh Sam this uh this this is a film that I used in a uh, a final exam or a final essay for a film class I taught about 16 years ago we had already watched Breathless in the class, and so students were a bit, bit familiar with uh, Godard. Uh, and I was, I was trying to figure out a good film that would enable them to address a number of different issues. And that was, that was how I sought out Contempt. And like you, I was, I was struck by how different it was, and yet in some ways it is also typically Godard. But there's just so much going on in this film. It just seemed like a great way to, to see what students had kind of absorbed from the class. Well, absolutely. I think this is one, even as I was writing notes, I had to just tell myself to stop writing because like I got to about five pages and I thought I haven't even talked about this or this. And I thought there's no way we're going to have time to talk about everything that that uh, that came up here. So uh, it's a very rich I feel like it's a very rich film that you can read uh, if you want to read this movie as a movie about a marriage it is that if you want to read this movie as a movie about filmmaking it is definitely that if yeah. you want to look at this as a french new wave film it is definitely that and does all of those things if you want to look at it as about literary and film adaptations it is about that if you want to look at i mean it's just you can sort of keep going mm -hmm. um so so i will say that uh that that yeah there's just so much to say um i want to i want to talk about my experience uh after watching this and i think i think godard would read this as a compliment <laughs> which is so i watched this on saturday morning and uh the movie just kind of worked on me and i read a bunch of stuff about it later in the day on saturday and that night saturday night into sunday morning i had a nightmare about my marriage falling apart it was so much it was so much driven by reading about this movie and watching this movie and when i woke up and realized it wasn't real once i got over the like you know how you're kind of shaken after a nightmare even though you know it's not real i was like i think Guitard would appreciate that that like something about this really worked on me <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I think that uh, once the films begin to invade your dreams, then uh, then Gars, Godard has certainly made his point. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, uh, I, I, there's so many ways to get in this movie, but let's let's start with with the first thing you see in this movie uh, tells you so much about about one of the things that this movie is about. Um, and that that this from the very beginning, you realize, okay, this is going to be a movie both about making movies and a movie that constantly wants to tell you, I am a movie, you are watching a movie. So it, it, 
which is interesting because to my dream point, it clearly affect the, the narrative of the plot clearly affected me. But at the same time, this is a movie that is, uh, breaking the convention of movie to remind you you're watching a movie and to make you think about the fact that you're watching a movie mm-hmm. um so you open on this like great uh tracking like it's not a track it's a stationary shot of somebody filming a tracking shot with a woman who turns out to be a character in the film and it's and it's and what was interesting is i was wondering is is this shot going to be that we're watching them film going to be in the film i don't think it is um but it but it very well could be um so you're introduced to this character as an actress that then you're later going to see as a character in the film and the other brilliant thing you get here that i've that had never occurred to me was the idea that credits could be in audio and i don't think i mean i had subtitles on obviously but i don't think the credits appear on the screen even do they are they only audible that's it i mean the only words you get on screen at the end is theme yeah yeah that's it no otherwise those are the only credits that you see yeah or here rather yeah. So, so that's, I mean, I, and, and that speaks to one of the big things Godard does in this film. And I, I should tip my hat. Um, a lot of, uh, there's a great audio commentary of this film on the Criterion channel mm-hmm. that, that helped me come to realize a lot of this stuff. Um, but one of the things that Godard does in this film, and, and I think generally, and he does this in Breathless as well, is this is about all of this different media, right? That you're, you're hearing, you're seeing people read and they're reading out loud. You you're watching people flip through books and you're looking at artwork and books. You're hearing things you're watching, you know, like, like he's drawing in all of this stuff. So he's asking you to even, even question the um, conventions of, of film that like you assume credits are text on a screen. And he's saying, no text or credits can also be something that's that, that that's read aloud. Yeah, and uh, two two other things about two other things about that opening. One is, um, uh, and a couple ways in which it's a very new wave opening. One is the, the quotation from Andre Bazan. Uh, Bazan, of course, was the founder of Heroes to Cinema, uh, in which Godard wrote as a critic, and um, he quotes Bazan saying, "The cinema substitutes for our gaze a world more in harmony with our desires. Contempt is a story of that world." Which is, which is really interesting to think about. I'm not sure that contempt is a world in harmony with my desires, but that's, but that's what's said. So there's lots of ways in which uh, the way that Godard handles uh, a, a lot of his scenes are very kind of inspired by Bazan. Bazan was a, was a big promoter of realism. He loved Jean Renoir. He loved, he loved Orson Welles. And there's a, there's a famous Godard quote, which I did not mention when we, when we uh, watched Breathless. Um, but Godard says, um, photography is truth and cinema is truth 24 times per second. And that's, that's his debt to Bazan. Uh, but the other thing that's very new wave at the beginning is the way he uses that camera to break the fourth wall. Because mm-hmm. the last thing the camera does that comes and it looks at you almost like... Um, uh, like the uh, the Cyclops Polyphemus in, in the Odyssey, or maybe even Fritz Lang's monocle. Uh, one critic has suggested that maybe it's a mirror and we are the camera. We're looking at ourselves as the camera focuses us. So he does an incredible amount in those first, you know, kind of two and a half minutes. Yeah, no, I had in my notes that it, that that 
you're actually watching the fourth wall break the fourth wall because yeah. the camera is the fourth wall, but it is it is then it is then turning on you. And there is something so like unsettling about that. I it, because it's not that you don't see. I mean, there's plenty of of movies you can watch where you see somebody filming something, but there is something unsettling about the camera just turning back at at you, the viewer, or camera face. I mean, if you're actually in that space, it would be camera facing another camera that. Mm-hmm. realize you've never seen and it's and I, I it's 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 deeply unsettling and it uh and i i, I kind of love that now we go from that scene to um the scene that gets added and you can tell this this story but the the scene with um with uh paul and um and camille in bed together and one of the interesting things about this again the movie reminding you it's a movie is mid scene he flips color filters twice so he goes from red to white to blue which are both the colors of the french flag and the american flag and this is a french american yeah so 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 there's all that but but even that is 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 telling you something about like what you're watching is both real and unreal like that it is something which is um which is being created by somebody and that person is making choices about things. Um, and I, and I compare that to later on in the movie, uh, when they're in Capri and there's the, they're, they're inside that amazing house and it's this very dramatic scene. And, and throughout that scene, the score just keeps pulling up and down and almost like in, un- in not to emphasize drama, but to emphasize almost like to emphasize there is a score playing and the score pulls up and pulls down. And I, I, I didn't get a chance to watch that scene again because I really wanted to track a little bit more like why now is the score really loud? And then it and then it regresses. I mean, it's like it almost feels more like the waves coming and going than it feels like it is. um it is something that is lining up with the drama of the scene. But that again is, is a film element jumping out and making itself known. Yeah, exactly. Cause, cause you know, the, the Hollywood convention is you, you sort of don't notice the non-diegetic music. It's there to create a mood. And in a sense, if you don't notice it, it's really doing its work and Godard, it's great. I mean, he's okay. You want non-diegetic music? Here's some non-diegetic music, which actually incidentally was one of the influences of the film on Scorsese's Casino, for example, that particular soundtrack. Um, I, I want to go back to what you said about the, uh, about that opening scene with, with Bardot. And um, of course, the context is that, you know, Bardot was probably the most photographed woman in the world at the time. She was an international uh, kind of sex symbol. And the, the film was produced by a Frenchman, an American, and, and an Italian. And um, the American in particular is worth, is worth mentioning. It's Joseph Levine, who was kind of a one-man production studio called Embassy Pictures. And he was, he was best known for, um, I mean, he produced over 400 films in his career. And he was best known for schlock. So although he brought Godzilla, the first Godzilla to the U.S., he produced that, uh, added uh, Raymond Burr as the narrator. Uh, he produced Hercules with Stephen Reeves in 1958. So that kind of stuff. But he had this odd side where he was actually interested in artistic things. He kind of liked the idea that he could produce a film that would actually go to a big film festival. Uh, and then later in his career, he produces The Graduate. Uh, and the lion in winter and the producer. So he's a really interesting mix. Um, so, but at the same time, uh, he wanted to be sure that the film had, as he put it, plenty of ass. Uh, and so the story around Godard putting in that 
that prologue is, yes, Godard would never admit that he simply did this in order to please the producers. Godard, Godard said, no, it's, I'm happy that it's in there. Well, in a sense, it's in there because he found a way both to satisfy the producers, but at the same time kind of snub his nose at the producers. Um, the other thing that's important about the film being an international production is um, with four different languages, Godard did that to kind of ensure that the film couldn't easily be dubbed. Um, the Italian version was dubbed. It was cut way down by about uh, 15 or 20 minutes and Godard completely um, disowned that version of the film. The American and the French versions are very close, 100 to 103 minutes. The version we watch is the American version at, at, at 100 and 103. Well, what's interesting about that scene is it is it is it is a prolonged uh, nude scene that sort of lovingly looks at her body, but not but it is not a, a sex scene. And then the thing that they're talking about is like it's it, I mean, actually, in very Homeric ways, it is cataloging. Mm -hmm. If you read the uh, the Odyssey or especially the Iliad, Homer is very fond of cataloging everything that's on every ship. Yeah. And it's like uh, it's like Camille is cataloging her body and asking, well, do you love my feet? Do you love my ankles? Do you love my, you know, and, and, but also saying potentially to the producer, like, these are the things you wanted. So let's let's go through and make sure we see everything and we name it. And um, but it also is is speaking. I mean, this is a film about uh, people's insecurities and it's speaking to uh, and insecurities in relationships and what she's saying at least could be read as a kind of of speaking to insecurity please assure me that you love that you love that you love um and and we're going to see later on that becomes this driving question is is why don't you love me now but coming in the in the other direction so so it's 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 a really really interesting scene uh in that way um in terms of other things that are sort of this consciously being a movie um you have the <laughs> the two characters discussing costumes almost in the apartment scene where camille has the wig and uh and and uh paul talks about his hat and actually says you know his hat makes him look like humphrey bogart in this is it humphrey Bo no no dean martin, dean, dean martin. Dean martin yeah. and, some, and some came running yeah, yeah and he's yeah. like so, so so it's like they're both sort of putting on costumes and then at the same time they're almost literally wearing roman togas mm -hmm. as they're walking around in these towels uh paul even more so like it when i saw that i just had to laugh it's like who has ever worn a towel like that after <laughs> taking a bath uh but it's but but it's effective in that way and then the last thing i would say to this is uh the casting of fritz lang as fritz lang <laughs> like like you keep thinking like he's not Fritz Lang playing a director. He's Fritz Lang playing Fritz Lang. And they even talk to him about other movies that he made. So they taught, they mention M and things like this. And it's like, this is, these are all these things that are, that are jumping out to you to say, isn't this interesting? This is a film you're watching. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, back, back to the, uh, back to the scene where they're dressing like uh, Greek characters and uh, she's done that wig. And there's a couple things to say about that wig, of course. Um, uh, there, there's a way in which Contempt is a very personal film for Godard. Um, so he was married to the actress Anna Karina, uh, who was in several of his, of his films in the, in the 60s, and reportedly their, their marriage was, was falling apart at the time the Contempt was being made. So when Bardot puts that, that wig on, uh, well, there's a couple things going on. One is um, it's an obvious ploy to, um, to hide her, part of her sexiness, which is those long blonde tresses. 
But I think more importantly, she, she looks a, a lot like Anna Karina, uh, Godard's wife, when she, do, when she does that. So I think it's, that it's another way in which the film is uh, personal and taking that theme of love and losing love and really applying it to kind of the director's own wife. And there's ways in which Michelle Pickley in that hat looks a little bit like Godard. Uh, Godard himself wore a hat like that. And when he's in the film at the end, it's the second, second director, he's got a hat on like that. Um, it's also been suggested, this stretches the point a little bit because the film was being made at the same time, but it's been also been suggested that it makes her look a little bit like Elizabeth Taylor as Cleopatra uh, in that big screen uh, flop that was going on also in 1963. Well, it's interesting. Uh thinking about some of the the exterior things to this movie that get brought in because i think you can also look at the casting of the four principal people and realize that all of them uh to at least the, the degree i can see like are bringing parts of their persona outside of or the meaning of what it would mean to cast these people because uh, if i remember in breathless he's casting people who aren't particularly actors yet right mm-hmm. like like these are these are all new actors or non-actors um but now we have people who are bringing um screen image uh screen history uh to them so I mean, you've already talked about sort of what what it meant to have bridget bardot in a movie and then how he plays with that idea um you know in terms of how he uh how he's maybe made to appease the producers but then otherwise i mean he actually flirted with the idea of having her wear the wig the entire movie mm-hmm. um and and even the way he has her dress and things like that um jack palance uh at this point i mean he was mostly played like a gangster and a heavy and things like that in movies right is that oh yeah, oh, yeah. and we and we last saw we we saw him a while ago in shane of course as the uh as the as the bad guy there sure yeah so 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 he, he has that baggage as he's playing this movie producer and the movie producer then is this this sort of like uh i mean is is the villain of the movie uh both uh in terms of this marriage potentially well maybe um and then aesthetically he is the villain of the movie uh you know in terms of what this movie says about cinema mm-hmm. uh we already talked about fritz lang being fritz lang so he brings that in and even uh michelle Pikley, who i didn't know much about but in the commentary it talked about how uh Pikley actually had a long history in in french cinema and in a history in making the kinds of movies godard didn't like mm-hmm. yeah. um so so there is something to to the fact that that uh that Pikley is representative of sort of potentially the artist selling out and then he is you know an actor who again was in a lot of movies that that godard would be like well that's actually not what good cinema is so so i feel like all of that is brought to this movie and is you know extra textual or subtextual within this well it's interesting that godard did not get the elite actors he wanted uh he wanted frank sinatra and kim novak uh novak largely i think on the strength of her performance in uh in, in vertigo but i'm glad he didn't get them because i think what he does with these two actors is really uh, is really rich and uh, and interesting well and i think with 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 uh especially with sinatra you would lose the the multilingual quality of this movie which is we'll talk more about that which i think is utterly fascinating um because even that's a movie making thing like it makes you think about when you read a a a subtitle am i really reading what the person Mm -hmm. said because i'm hearing palance say something and then i'm hearing um Mm -hmm. i'm hearing francesca 
I'm reading Francesca, then um, translating it. And, and at first it took me a while because I was like, that didn't seem like what he said, but maybe I didn't hear him right. And eventually I realized like, well, she's not saying what he said. She is interpreting and adapting. This is about, she is the embodiment of adaptation. She's adapting what everybody's saying to the other person and mediating it in that way. Uh, she, I think she's my favorite character in this movie. I think she's fascinating um, in, in terms of the, the, the role she plays and how, how completely brilliant of a person she is, not just in terms of language, but the way she can engage in everybody in, in, I mean, the way she engages Lang in literature and he'll drop a reference and she'll be like, Oh, that's this person. And that's Dante. And that's it's just like, she is fascinating to me. Um, one of the things, and, and, uh, and I don't think this was probably intentional for you, but pairing this movie with last week's movie, um, we talked about how last week's movie centers around the question why that we're watching something happen, but our main, uh, you know, maybe hero of that movie and the Jeff Bridges character, he's baffled by the why. And that's the question that drives him. He knows what's happening, but why? Um, and as viewers, we're even stuck. We're even in that situation. Uh, this movie is so much, and it's one of the things I love about it is so much about the question. Why? Um, it's not, it's not, does Camille, has she lost love for Michelle? And and you do, that does, come and go sort of like that soundtrack for a while, but ultimately that, that marriage is broken and destroyed. Um, but he's constantly asking why, and Godard doesn't entirely show us. It doesn't explicitly tell us why we can implicitly read all kinds of things into it, but we're still sort of in this space of like, I think that's why, but she never has the moment where she stops and says definitively, this is why this is the moment when this happened, or this is why that happens. And I think that makes this movie so strong because it's, it, it, it frustrates you in the best kinds of ways as you're watching the two of them, especially in the apartment scene, have this long conversation and people aren't entirely saying everything on their minds. Yeah, and it makes you wonder or it makes you worry a little bit. Well, well, did I miss something? Because I, I feel like, we're at a point in the conversation where it seems to be assuming something that I feel like I, I should have heard or understood earlier, but I don't think I really did. So we're, we are we are placed in the position, especially of Paul, in trying to figure out her logic. And she herself isn't, I mean, you know, you and I have talked, Sam, a lot about, you know, what happens in a film when people fall in love and do we believe in that or not? Uh, and as you suggested at the beginning, this this film is really about the mystery of why do people fall out of love? And and it's 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 clear that there are that there are missteps, you know, when when he encourages her to get into the, the car with 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 Jerry, right? And you, you you can see the beginning of it there. Like, can you say to yourself, well, is is he prostituting her? Is he telling her to go with Jerry and do whatever Jerry Jerry wants? Um, and and he and she wants, you know, it's like she wants him to say something, but he won't say it. And we know that that's like in relationships, right? If you really cared about me, you really loved me, you would know that you're supposed to do this or not do that. And then she's suspicious of him when he shows up late, um, doesn't believe his story about the accident. And does that mean that, again, he wanted her to spend some time with Jerry, et cetera? So there's, there's all these, these suspicions. And the frustration, but it's, I think, true to life, the frustration is that every time they try to make it explicit, they each draw back. You know, when he kind of asks her to say, well, kind of lay the cards on the table. And she says, oh, I love you. You know, I'm just, I'm just, 
you know, I'm just kind of fooling with you. And, you know, is that a sour smile or a, or a happy smile, whatever he says? Oh, no, it's a happy smile. But you know, but you know that, that it's not. One of the other kind of key Godard quotes, which I think is really important for the scene, uh, is Godard says, in my films, you have to listen to people talking. And, and, and that's what's fascinating about that great middle section, which is probably, the, in a sense, at the heart of the film, both in terms of the time and in terms of the theme, is that it is, it's this cinemascope, but it's in this restricted space. It, make, it makes me think a little bit about um, Tarantino's Hateful Eight. Uh, and Tarantino was a, was a, is a director influenced by Godard. You know, he does Hateful Eight in 70 millimeter widescreen, but almost all the action is in, is an interior. And that's exactly what Godard is doing in that, in that section as well. So you've got this expansive space, but at the same time, he's trying to show you how restricted they are in, in their, in their movements. Yeah, it makes me think of uh, the thing Truffaut said about it being like a fish tank, right? Mm -hmm. That you have this, the, 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 this wide space, that they that that you're forcing these these characters to to occupy, and he does such interesting things with it. Um, I mean, famously the uh, the tracking shot when they're sitting at the table, where you have a wide screen, you could just pull back a little bit and have the two of them in profile, which would be a really cool shot. Yeah. But instead, he gets even tighter, so the camera has to track back and forth to catch the to catch their faces as they're talking and the camera's movement doesn't much like the score the sort of wave lapping score uh in the in capri the camera's movement doesn't match the dialogue right it, i think it matches the light turning off and on more than it matches the um right like who's talking uh, and he compared that to like like watching a tennis match or something right that that you're you're you're, you're sort of moving back and forth and it's that's such a such a brilliant shot because so much of that scene in the apartment is shot wide wider you know so so you're um cuz the other great thing about that scene is you're moving I feel like I understand that apartment physically so well. Yeah. So in terms of its spatial consistency and it's uh, and it's what almost feels like real time. I mean, obviously there are cuts in there, but it feels like he actually, it feels like we didn't miss any of that conversation, even though sometimes it feels like, did I miss something? You, 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 you got to see all of that and even the digressions and asides and the phone calls and the people going, walking away and the people doing this or that, um, that, that I think the way that he, he occupies that space is so, is so brilliant. That was, that was by far the most exciting scene. And it reminds me a bit of in breathless, we take that break where we're in the, the, the little apartment room, um, with, uh, with 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 the two leads and it's I mean it's a different scene but 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 there again we are um, occupying this this space and thinking about how these two characters and their relationship are moving through that space well of course you know obviously with the light change it takes you back to the prologue um, except now they're clothed and they're sitting up um, it also of course is a um, it's a it's a one of those reminders that you're watching a film both because of the camera movement and, as you said, the camera movement is not always in sync with, with the dialogue. So it's, it's Godard's constant ability to both engross you and at the same time remind you that what you're watching is, is a film. In other words, he, he doesn't kind of fall prey to the 
classic Hollywood invisible editing. You know, the idea is that you're going to forget that this is that this is a film. You're going to engage this as real life. But at the same time, we do we you know we do engage it, 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 it as real life. I would also point out that it is one of three kind of extended conversations that that Paul and uh, Camille have. And the final one um, in Capri uh, is, it's interesting, it's again where she's naked on her on her stomach um, with the book on her on her bottom. Uh, no light changes now, it's a full Capri, Capri light. And Paul, of course, is, is completely clothed. So it's a really kind of interesting progression that, that kind of marks the changes in the relationship. Well, I think another important thing about that that that's seen at the center of the movie in the apartment uh, and this is coming from the commentary is the the fact that it's in the apartment because the apartment becomes this symbol of uh maybe a certain standard of life or quality of life there is this sense of like would we would you rather have the apartment or live in a hotel and and there is this this uh, maybe projection of a kind of domestic life that they have. It's also important that the apartment is under construction, right? I love how they keep walking through that door that doesn't have the window in it or doesn't have the center panel in it to to point that out to you. Uh, and then there there is this question of like, is this apartment actually part of the original sin, right? If it is about mm-hmm. not just him sort of prostituting out his wife, but him prostituting out his talent, you know, for, for money, is this, uh, is this the, is this the, is this actually the thing that's, that is ripping them apart is, is this sense of like, is this his dream for their life? Is this her dream for their life? Is that, you know, uh, the fact that we're in that apartment, I think is such a, uh, such a key point to that. Well, yeah. And, and, and it's interesting. I, I really wasn't thinking about this connection, but there is a connection. We've had conversations about in our earlier films, we talked about Gun Crazy and Bonnie and Clyde. We've had conversations about what happens when it appears that at least one of the partners in a relationship is motivated by some form of ambition uh, or ambition on behalf of the other person. And so, you know, one of the the two things the couples argue about stereotypically, right, is our, our sex and money. Um, and, and this, this really highlights the money theme because he, and they keep, they keep trying to put responsibility on each other. So you're right. The apartment is, is kind of at the center of this argument and you get one of the few subjective shots in the film when they're walking up to the apartment and you look up and you you look up at it. So, you know, so he's trying to say, well, gee, you know, I thought you wanted this apartment. So if you want this apartment, I got to take this job because I got to do this for money because that's really what you want. And she's like, no, that's not, you can't do that. You can't say it's up to me. It's up to you. And, and they do the same thing with Capri, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and all, you know, do you want to go to Capri? Do you, I don't want to go to Capri. I want you to come to Capri. I mean, it, it is typical. And, and, and what happens in this relationship is they find many, many different points to kind of uh, worry each other at in the sense of, you know, they, they, just keep, they just keep finding these sores and they just keep rubbing them because, both of them, I think, suspect that something has changed in this relationship. Uh, neither one can quite put their finger on it. And so they, they kind of act out of their vulnerabilities. So her vulnerability is, um, I think maybe you only were interested in me because I'm beautiful and you actually look down on me because I'm just a typist and just a secretary. And his vulnerability is maybe I really don't have any talent. Maybe I'm really not the, the cultured man that I really 
think that I am. So I think it's ultimately because they both have those insecurities that they then find ways that the situation with making this film brings those insecurities out and then they just chip away at each other. Right. And then that also the, those the, that sort of question of like, do we go to Capri? Do I accept this job? All of that tension is then also played out on a on a bigger scale in terms of this this film's commentary on the film industry. Right. That you have this these tensions between um, uh, Prokosh and uh, and Lang in mm-hmm. terms of what this movie's going to be. Right. And this seems uh uh, another like layer out this seems like a core idea right the producer is uh sort of represents um money and commerce right he's the one who is um there is one of the great jack palance moments in this movie is when they're watching the 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 rushes and they get to the the mermaid or the nasika i'm not sure what that is supposed to be in the and 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 it's just this this naked woman swimming and he gets so excited and just starts to laugh and he says oh i know this this works for you and i fritz but like will the public and he says but you can tell he's just excited it's like finally these aren't just greek statues and things like this it's like this is this will sell right that palance is perfect in that moment and then you have lang representing the the director and what we know about the french new wave right the director is the auteur so it's interesting that the hero the hero of this movie if if we're thinking in homeric terms right um the michelle pickley character paul is actually not who godard thinks is the hero of the filmmaking process it's actually lang right it's Mm -hmm. actually the director so we see those two uh at odds and at tension and 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 you see you know our our and here's where we might start to get into homer a little bit like our odyssean character our ulysses character is actually pulled between art or commerce um you know so 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 i i just find that that's so interesting that the writer is the one who is compromised who is you know mm-hmm. um more unimportant in in sort of how godard and other french new wave writers and uh and or i should say critics and filmmakers think about the filmmaking process yeah, you have um, you have Lang quoting, uh, and I've not been able to track this down. What he calls the ballad of, of BB, the ballad of Bertolt Brecht. Uh, Each morning to earn my bread, I go to the market where lies are sold, and hopefully, I get in line with the other sellers. And 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 Lang sort of seems to be applying that to himself in terms of making this film. But I think, as you're saying, more importantly, it's really being applied applied to Paul uh, as as the writer, because in the same way that he might be. You could argue that that if he does sort of want to prostitute Camille, even if he's not really thinking that consciously, it's partly because he's prostituting himself. Uh, and I think I think the other psychological complexity to his actions with her is he he's already putting himself in that position with Prokish, and so it's like, well, she'll if she'll do that too. You know, if she'll get in the car with him, if she'll make nice with him, I'm not suggesting she sleep with him, but if she'll just kind of go along with him, I won't feel so bad about the fact that I'm taking his money as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, and then we get the, um, sort of the, 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 the great sort of art and commerce moment 
um, when they're debating the film. And um, and this is also where we get <laughs> definite strains of sort of fascism and Nazism mm-hmm. in this movie. For one thing, we hear the earlier them talking about um, in 19, whether this story is true or not, in 1933, that Goebbels offered yeah. Lang the the uh, the German film industry. And, and Prokash says, well, that was 1933. This is 1963. Um, but then then we hear him uh we hear prokash say when i hear culture mentioned i get out my checkbook and then he actually makes um francesca lean over so she can write the he can write the check on her back and that is a that is a quote of um attributed to goebbels but apparently it's it's uh, actually hans jost who's a nazi poet who said when i hear the word culture i reach for my gun <laughs> um so so there there are the it sort of smacks of that a little bit but but that's that's sort of part of that tension of like um you know, again, that that sort of uh, art art versus commerce, and and it and it points to sort of um, uh, what Godard maybe thinks about producers like Prokash, maybe producers like Levine. At the same time, they're paying for his movie, so you know, they're so so Godard also potentially feels the uh, the potential of being compromised in making the film we're watching. Yeah, well, well, later on, Francesca says says to Paul, I think maybe this is right before when they're actually on Capri, she says, you aspire to a world like Homer's. You want it to exist, but unfortunately it doesn't. When it comes to making movies, dreams aren't enough. Mm-hmm. So that's so that, that there's there's the checkbook aspect. You know, as you said at the beginning, Godard had a million dollars to make this film. He never had that much money before in his life. So, um, No, I have to say that... Uh... I am a sucker for, and this is why when I read the obituaries, why I was starting this movie, I have a sucker for any retelling of a Homeric myth, especially if you want to put it in a modern context. Um, it's interesting to watch this and realize this is only 41 years after uh, Joyce's Ulysses, mm. but it seems like a million years in, 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 in some ways, you know, thinking about, I mean, they're both modernizations of the Odyssey, uh, but on different ends of the second world war on different ends of lots of things happening. You know, Ulysses is set in 1905. This is set in 1963. And there's a big, uh, there's a big sort of gap uh, between those, but I'm, I'm always interested in how an artist takes, takes the Homeric epics and says, okay, well, where, where can I find the modern in this? Um, And it's so interesting to, to, to sort of think about this because, um, and what I'm about to say are things that are obvious. I mean, Prokash is, oh, well, you know, if Paul is Odysseus and Camille is Penelope, then Prokash is sort of both the suitors, but he's also Poseidon. And the movie yeah. kind of points to that, right? When they're watching the dailies and they talk about Poseidon as the um, the enemy of Odysseus, Poseidon is the, is the one who is keeping Odysseus from, the god of the seas, right? Is keeping Odysseus from ever making it back to Ithaca. And then the whole story is about how does he slip past Poseidon and get back, uh, get back to Penelope. And then I was thinking about who Lang is in this. Um, and you made the reference to like, like Lang's monocle, but Lang is definitely not the, uh, no, he's <laughs> definitely not the, um, the Cyclops. I mean, I think Lang is, is probably Athena. If we're, if, if, uh, mm. if Prokash is Poseidon, Lang is probably Athena, the, who is the protector and also mm. the voice of wisdom, the goddess of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so it's interesting because this is a story, this is a version of the Odyssey without a Telemachus character, right? Without a, mm-hmm. uh, without that character. Um, and what's also interesting is Godard takes the Odyssey and focuses almost entirely on the return to Ithaca, 
Mm-hmm. There is there is no Odyssey in the story except for maybe that long cab ride. That's mm-hmm. the Odyssey. Like mm-hmm. that's what we think of as the Odyssey is that long cab ride. And 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 what Godard and this is what I love about this movie as an adaptation of the Odyssey itself is that Godard is really interested in like I mean if you if you read Homer. There's a lot of action at the end of the Odyssey with the, you know, where he slays the suitors and all this stuff. But Godard's really interested in the relationship between Penelope and Odysseus and saying, really, was she faithful? And really, couldn't he have not gotten home sooner? Was there was there something else keeping him back? And Godard is very interested in that. And I find that fascinating. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that that that's what's really wonderful is the various changes they play on the motivation and the actions of Ulysses, right? So, yeah, why did it take him 10 years? He could have have gotten there a bit faster, couldn't he? Um, And why is he pushing her into the arms of the suitors? Um, And so, yeah, and and was she really faithful? So, yeah, it it brings that kind of, I mean, not to say that uh, Homer is not complex himself, but it's interesting how Homer becomes a, a, a kind of a nice template on which he can lay various kinds of modern concerns and complexities. Well, and that's why I like that. Like I said, you know, Prokash, you could look at Prokash as Poseidon, or you could look at him as only the suitors because potentially yeah. this is, this is a version of like, is, is this the Odyssey without the gods? It's like, what if we, what if we strip that away? We strip those as these benevolent or malevolent forces away. And we just say, this is life because then it does raise the question of like, what took Odysseus so long? And, yeah, you, know, yeah, I mean, you, know, you know, and, 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 and interestingly enough, you know, Lang quotes that the, the, the lines from Holderlin's uh, poet's vocation and says that it's God's absence that reassures man. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of that is because if there are no gods, then there is no, there is no fate. Um, Lang says, it's very interesting. This is Lang being quoted by Camille reading a book, sitting in the bath. Uh, and he says that Greek tragedy was negative in that it made man a victim of fate as embodied by the gods who abandoned him to a hopeless destiny. Man can rebel against things that are bad or false. So I think that that's, that, that's why, yeah, if there are no gods, then maybe there is more freedom. But then the irony is that it doesn't seem as though Paul is able to act any more freely than he could if there were gods controlling his fate. It does, he, he seems trapped the, He seems trapped by circumstances. And at one point, I love the way Goodard does this. At one point, he pulls out that gun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know the, the dramatic rule, according to Yes, Chekhov I thought of Chekhov. Is, you, know, you got a gun in the first act. And, and the gun goes nowhere. It's, it's, it's beautiful because, first of all, the gun goes nowhere because we've heard Lang also say that Killing, uh, killing is a crime of passion is not doesn't solve anything, uh, and of course it goes nowhere because Camille takes the bullets out. Um, but uh, but uh, but it's it's as though um, he's he's had his agency taken away from him. Insofar as his agency in certain kinds of films, it, it's it's especially American films, it's expressed through the gun, and he gets kind of almost uh, almost demasculinized uh, as a result. No, I mean literally taking the bullets out of the gun, like he is made impotent. It is made impotent. It's like it's like well, it doesn't it doesn't even matter, right? That in um and it that sort of speaks to his his uh, his condition. Um, I want to I want to go back to a line from the very beginning of this movie that that hung with me, and I just want to know your thoughts on this line at the in that opening scene with Camille and Paul when she's asking, you know, do you love my ankles? Do you love my feet? He says at the end of that, I love you totally tenderly and tragically. 
And in my notes, I wrote, why does he say this? Or is this just he's talking like a movie character? Or do you think there is like, like, like that line sticks out in a, in a kind of way? And maybe it's just meant to stick out because people don't talk like that. Or, or, or <laughs> I don't know, like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, you can take it a couple different ways, right? You can you can you can say that it was a um, it's his unconscious foreshadowing of where their relationship was going, right? That it's that it's his knowing somehow without knowing uh, that he knows that they're headed for for uh, for a, a split a split up. Uh, so you can take it that way, you know, that it's an unconscious revelation of what's already in his on his mind. Um, or you can take it that, yeah, he fancies himself um, a man of letters, uh, sophisticated. And so he's going to say something that sounds really, really deep and profound. Uh, and I don't think you have to choose between the two. I think they're I think they're both equally possible. Absolutely. Uh, let's just jump to the end of this movie. What are your thoughts on the way Godard chooses to conclude this film and I, I and maybe I mean less the the actual final scene where they're where they're shooting staring off at at Ithaca and maybe staring off at nothing um and maybe we can talk about that too but but I mean the the, the car crash as uh oh, yeah. that, that that's 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 a, a very distinct choice and I, I I bring this up because um in there's a really great criterion collection essay about this film uh, by Philip Lepat. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, uh, in assessing this film, much depends on whether one regards the director's sympathies as balanced between the couple or as one-sidedly male. Mm-hmm. Um, and he and he says, like, he makes a case and, and people who are working with Godard, Godard are making the case that he is on um, Camille's side. Mm-hmm. But then what do you do with the car crash at the end? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah the, the, to have Camille die, to be denied the freedom uh, that she was pursuing uh, and to have Paul survive. I mean, one thing you could say is that it it's the most it's the most tragic um, outcome that he could create, right? So Camille dies and Paul is left. Um, one one would imagine kind of kind of kind of rudderless. Um, or you could argue that it's a kind of um, it's a kind of. Uh, payoff it it, it it it's exactly what jerry has been headed for right the fact yeah. that it's the car and and uh which is you know an extension of himself i love the fact that when she gets into the car she she says um she she, she says alpha hyphen or comma Ro, 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 romeo or, or romeo but at the same time it points to the fact and, and you see this in a lot of classic literature you see it in biblical literature that um, the bad choices of one person can have a negative consequence for another person, mm. even if they're not. I mean, did, did she deserve to die? If you want to think about it that way, for what happened between her and Paul? Well, no, but she got caught up in a force. So there is a kind of a there is a kind of a Greek tragic element to it, right? Because that's what happens in the tragedies. Um, sometimes it's the guilty that die, but sometimes it's the innocent. And so I think that's. I mean, and, and the and the crash is is um, is film is is uh, set up in such a odd way. Like you look at it, you're like, what was he trying to do? Was he trying to go underneath that truck? Was he trying to go between the two sections? It 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 it, it it's very um, it's very contrived. Yes, uh, and it's and it's almost as though it brings to your it focuses your attention on the fact that this is a, a kind of act that maybe this is an act of fate. Because I don't know how he got the car in that position. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I have a couple other pieces here, but do you have things you want to talk about? Um, yeah, I, I wanted to say something about, um, we, you know, we haven't talked a lot about the first act, which is in the, uh, the Italian studios, the Cinecitta, uh, which look like they're in, you know, complete disarray. It's like the, literally the Italian film industry is, is falling apart. And I should say that Joseph Levine was also responsible for um, bringing uh, Fellini's Eight and a Half hmm. uh, to the United States as well. But there's a quote on the wall of the, of the, of the screening room from Louis Lemaire, who, of course, was the French inventor of film. And Louis Lemaire says, the quote says, the cinema is an invention without a future. Hmm. And I thought, well, that's, that's an odd quote to have. Um, well, I did a little bit of chucking on that. So he says that in 1895, like right as soon as he kind of, quote, invents film. And I think the quote is, is, is intended to be ironic. So he said 68 years ago, the cinema is an invention without a future. And maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. You could argue, well, it is true because Cinecitta is falling apart. Cinema no longer is artistic. It's just, uh, it's just, it's made at the whim of people like Jerry Prokash. So maybe Lumiere was right. Maybe cinema doesn't have a future, or maybe it does have a future because people like Godard are making films like Contempt. So speaking of cinema being made, what are your thoughts on the Fritz Lang film that we're what that we watch? <laughs> Can I be honest, Sam? It looks <laughs> awful. It, it, yes. It, so somebody says, I think maybe it was in the Lopate article. Somebody says it looks like modernist wallpaper. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, I, and I can't figure out what to do about that because I want to say, I don't think that Jerry Prokosh is all that wrong. I mean, that, that, that looks like a really dreadful, stilted, um, art, uh, mannerist film. So, yeah, um, I don't well, know. Yeah, it's interesting because it, I mean, if, because Godard is the filmmaker, right? So that's not actually Fritz Lang's film. That's Godard right. saying this is Fritz Lang's right. film. So, so it is interesting that, that it's, it doesn't look like a Godard film. Like it, it's not like, like, it's like, oh, we, here's the thing we were potentially missing out on. Instead, we get this other, we get this other thing. I do like the, the, uh, the two sort of final things we get from Fritz Lang um, before the car crash, when, when uh, uh, Jeremy walks off, Prokash walks off and then he says, Fritz, I want to talk with you. And he, and it gets translated and he asks, is that a, a demand or a oh. request? <laughs> and, uh, and she says a request and he stands up and he turns to Paul and says, we suffer. <laughs> like, it's like, it's like, this is, this is, this is what we, but then after, after, per, after the car accident, or um, in, so in the final scene, Paul asks Fritz what he's going to do. And it's just like, I, you finish what you start. It's like, like mm -hmm. I am going to continue to make art. And it, so it does speak to this sort of like, maybe that question of the, is cinema and art without a future? It's like, well, the, the, if, if the hero, the auteur really, you know, if, is the director, right? It's like he endures, he endures even the, the, the rises and falls, you know, mm -hmm. that it's like, we still can, whether we think that movie looks good or not, right? Like, like we still, uh, th that, that we still continue. We suffer, but we endure, I think is, uh, I, I, I like that from him. Um, one question. Okay. Here's a file this under totally unfair question, but uh, I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, the, 
film critic Amy Nicholson, and she does podcasts and lots of different things. And she used to do a show, a podcast called The Canon, and they were they was it was all about like what films should or shouldn't be in the canon. It was always about unfair choices, you know, mm-hmm. some good tragic choices here. Uh, if you could have only one Godard film, would it be Breathless Contempt or another film? And it's an unfair question, but which would you which like like which would be the Godard film? It have to be breathless. Okay, I'm with you on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love contempt, but it have if, if you're yeah. If I only get one Godard, it's got to be breathless. So, uh. Uh, last question I have: uh, If you were to pair this movie with another movie, if we were double featuring contempt and something, what would you what would you pair this with? Um, I I would uh, I would pair it with Orson Welles's Other Side of the Wind. Oh, okay. Tell me about that. Yeah, because that is also a film about making a film. And, uh, and so, and, and the film within the film is even more developed than this one is. Uh, and it's uh, John Huston, who is the director of the film within the film. And that is uh, Orson Welles' uh, par- par- parody of a European art house film. Hmm. So The Other Side of the Wind is at least two films in one. It's, it's wonderfully rich. Um, but I also have to mention, I wouldn't pair it, but I would mention that uh, David Lynch's um, Mulholland Drive quotes the last line of this film. He quotes Silencio. Oh uh, yes, in, in, in one of the key scenes in Mulholland Drive. So yes, uh, so so here was my pair. I went in a different direction. I went with the marriage falling okay. apart and the the hauntingness of that. I think this would pair really interesting with Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. I think yes, those two yes. would be really good, I and mean, it would be a a long dark evening watching those. But like, <laughs> but I think those are two movies that I really love. I think would be would speak to each other and they have similar haunting qualities. I like your pairing better than mine. So I will tell the viewers to go with your pairing. All right. So what do you have for us for next week, Barrett? Well, it seems inevitable. The gods have decreed this, that how can we watch this film with Fritz Lang and know how much Godard admired Fritz Lang. They, uh, they had an hour long conversation about three, four years, four years later called the dinosaur and the baby. And the one Lang film that Godard picks out is M which was Lang's first uh, uh, sound film in 1931 when he was still in Germany. So uh, that may be hard for people to find, I have to, t- I have to say, but you and I can watch it on the Criterion channel. And, uh, and again, we are encouraging our listeners to get that Criterion uh, subscription. So Chris Lang's M from 1931. I will say I have seen this uh, in the past year. This is a great movie. I am so excited to dig into this. Barrett, thank you so much for recommending Contempt. Uh, this is a this is a great movie, uh, and I, it makes me want to go watch. Um, I want to go watch Breathless again and just think about like like filmmaking things that I'm seeing in between these. I I'm becoming a fan of Godard. I, I he feels very influential, and I know I know that he is, but I now he feels like he is a lot more. So thank you for recommending this. Thank you for having this conversation. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about M in the video store. Mm-hmm.